What a joy it is to sing of a fountain filled with blood that will rescue his church to sin no more. What a sweet promise that is. When this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing of his power to save. So I love that song. Thank you. And I love it because it displays Jesus laid his life down in order that we might have life. And from his death on the cross, life flows to us. Excuse me. And it is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And we're going to look at an event in Jesus' life that will show us his deep value and love for life. In Mark chapter 5, you can turn there if you'd like to. Anthony Edwards is an amazing basketball player. He plays for the Minnesota Timberwolves. And the world and everything in it recently did a a report on something in his life that was really a disturbing event. And it it pricked the conscience of of our nation, actually. It brought out some concerns, I think, to people that they could help see this a little more clearly, what's going on here. But let me read to you from their report. It said, like many young professional athletes, Anthony Edwards is wrestling with the trappings of wealth and fame. Recently, Instagram model Paige Jorday published screenshots of a text conversation in which she revealed to Edwards that she was pregnant with his child. His response was disturbingly callous. I can't do this, get an abortion, LOL. Jorday shared with him that she had had an abortion two years prior and regrets it every day. Still, Edwards pushed her to take cover over the counter pills that would cause a chemical abortion, promising money in return. Later, Jorday posted a picture, a screenshot of a $100,000 wire transfer from him, along with his demand to see the video of her taking the pills. After she sent him the video, he grew cold to her and said he'd only communicate through his lawyer. When their encounter became public, Anthony Edwards released a statement. I made comments in the heat of a moment that are not me and that are not aligned with what I believe and who I want to be as a man. All women should be supported and empowered to make their own decisions about their bodies and what is best for them. Now, lots of things bother me in this report. Uh, But apart from the major issues of abortion and coercion, one that just graded me was the LOL. The callousness that this displays towards an unborn child just hurts my heart. Get an abortion, LOL. And it stirs a weird mixture of anger and compassion inside of me. It's strange. But second is the way he apologized for his comments, but not his actions. He said the comments are not who he aims to be as a man. But he neglects to mention that he took the life of the baby. And that he coerced a woman with $100,000. And I see in this a desire in Anthony Edwards to be the Lord of life. He wants to be in control of life, but his actions and his comments actually reveal the kind of man he aims to be, which is a taker of life. And this morning we we turn our gaze to a very, very different man, the true Lord of life, the one we must all turn to for life. This is the one that we can hope in, who can heal us and restore life. It's easy to get angry and worked up over the entire abortion industry. It is very easy to decry the evils of it. And I will say Jesus agrees 
and in his time will bring an end to it entirely. But perhaps this morning you come here as we heard and maybe you have had an abortion or you were complicit in one. Maybe you wrestle with grief and shame and past guilt. Maybe you're uncertain of where you stand on this. What I want you to see in Jesus is a man who stops everything to restore and give life. He knows your pain and he will stop and turn to you and give you the life you need. There's never been a life that Jesus says, LOL, let's end that. He cares deeply and he works hard to lift up the broken. He works hard to defend the helpless. He works hard to restore the sick and the weary. He's the Lord of life and he came that you may have life and have it abundantly. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter five and we're at a place where the disciples have asked a critical question which is who is this man that the wind and the waves obey him? And Jesus had displayed that he's Lord of creation. And then he went on to show his power over the demonic and satanic. And now we, so we see he's Lord of the unseen. He's Lord of the spiritual realm. And this morning we see that he is the Lord of, of life because he has power over sickness and death. So Mark chapter five, Verses 21 to the end of the chapter. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, across the Sea of Galilee, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter's at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well, be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no, no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, 
Talitha kami, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus is the Lord of life. Jesus is the Lord of life. And the call in this text is for us to believe in him, to have faith in him. And we're gonna see that both Jairus and this woman are called to faith in Jesus and they just cast themselves entirely upon him. And two distinct pieces are that their faith becomes public and their faith is persevering. Jesus is the Lord of life. We should have faith in him and that faith is public and persevering. He's Lord over sickness and death. And you'll see he never worries about the time it takes to care for life. Jesus is the sick man's best friend in this story, the gentle savior, the one who's easily pursued, the one that listens to the broken, the refuge of the weak, the helper to the helpless, the comforter to the distress. He cares for every baby aborted. And he's there to restore and forgive the one who did the aborting. This is who we believe in. This is our savior. This is our Lord. So you see this hemorrhaging woman called out into the open with a public faith. And you see Jairus, the ruler of a synagogue, who must persevere in faith when he receives terrible, terrible news. So we keep coming to Jesus. We receive his touch. We hear his voice. We cast our cares and hopes upon him. So what's happened here is Jesus has come back across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. We're assuming that was a much easier trip than the last one when the waves and the storm came up. And the trip, he comes in and immediately he's met by throngs, big crowds of people. They're pressing around him. And so he's walking among these crowds and a man works his way to the front, Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, and approaches Jesus confrontationally in a, in a, in a forward-facing way. Now, the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, this would have been a respected man in the community. He was the president or the head of the local Jewish worshiping assembly. He's not a professionally trained scribe, but rather a lay member of the synagogue entrusted with oversight, entrusted with an eye on the orthodoxy of the teachings. He would keep an eye on building maintenance and security, getting scrolls for scripture readings, arranging the order of worship, designating readers, similar to a lot of what we do today. And you see, he was a man of respect and rank and wealth, and rank and wealth sickness has no regard for. So Jairus comes to Jesus because his daughter is sick and near death. And he's abandoned diplomatic approach. He's abandoned diplomatic appeal. He's begging, pleading, falling down before Jesus in desperation. My daughter's at death's door. This is the strongest appeal he can muster. Every fiber of his being as a father is in concern for his daughter and he's throwing them on Jesus. And look what he asks of Jesus in verse 23. My little daughter's at the point of death. <clears throat> Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. He just wants Jesus to come and touch his daughter, lay his hands on his daughter so she can be well and live. It's a sweet desire from the father, not just made well, but live, have a life, a wholesome life. 
And he's trusting Jesus can do this miracle. And then notice what Jesus does in verse 24. And he went with him. He just leaves this fawning, doting crowd to go with Jesus, to go with Jairus. He's so steady. Jesus is steadily turning and walking with the man to go pursue this daughter. And so Jesus is showing in this commitment that every human life is of inestimable value. He will leave the crowds to pursue the one. He hears, he comes when we cry out, he listens and he arrives in might and in mercy and unstoppable power. And he's carrying all that within himself even if he's just walking alongside of us. He's embodying this, he's the Lord of life. And as he's going, with this crowd, with Jairus, away from this crowd, something else is happening. A woman is coming, making her way through the crowd towards him. Now, this woman was in a bad way. Mark uses a word to describe her condition as something that combines like, both physical suffering as well as shame. Shame. She had had a flow of blood for 12 years. 12 years is a long, long time. And this is likely a menstrual hemorrhage for this woman, who would, which would render her unclean constantly for 12 years. Anyone who came into contact with her would be banished from the temple until evening. Her bed was unclean, anywhere she sat was unclean, and anyone who came into contact with those things would have to wash their clothes and they would be unclean until evening. 12 years of isolation and stigma, constant personal care and attention she had to do. Not only that, she sought the doctors, and look at verse 26. She'd suffered much under many physicians. Hopefully we don't describe our visit to the doctors as suffering. She suffered under these physicians. She spent all that she has has nothing left financially, over 12 years working, laboring to figure this out, and she's worse. I mean, just think about something. If you committed yourself to it for 12 years, sacrificed everything you had, and it was worse. She's gained nothing and lost everything. But she did not give up. She kept seeking. And she had heard reports about Jesus. Look at verse 27. She'd heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch his garment, I'll be made clean. Maybe, maybe he can heal me. No one else can. Maybe he'll care for me when no one else will. Maybe he has the cure that won't cost me anything financially because I don't have anything to give. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus is who he says he is. Maybe he can restore Maybe he's the Lord of life. So she believes and so she acts and she maneuvers through the crowd. Like so many people just fawning about Jesus, pressuring around her. And she's on this personal mission to connect to Jesus. Just gotta get to Jesus. And she just needed a touch of his garments. Just a simple touch. The contact with the Lord of life Maybe that'll bring her the life she needs. Now, 
There's some imagery here in Exodus 29. We know that whoever touched the altar became holy in the Holy of Holies. And in Numbers 15, God prescribed that the corner of garments were to have tassels on them as a reminder that Israel served the Lord their God and they should obey his commandments at all times. It was a reminder not to follow after their own desires, but be holy as their God is holy. So she may have seen in Jesus the embodiment of Israel's God and I just need to touch the fringes, I need to touch the tassels. But she heard, she came and she touched and instantaneous healing occurred. 12 years of frustration and shame are resolved in a moment's touch of Jesus. That to be in public for her, to be around a crowd would have been a major violation of societal norms. But then to touch Jesus is an even greater violation of Old Testament law. To risk transferring your uncleanness to all those people and then intentionally to do so to one would have been a major, a major offense. And consistent with our Lord's work throughout Mark so far, the unclean don't bring their uncleanness to him, do they? No, he transfers his cleanliness to them because in himself, he will embody their uncleanness in the cross. He's the Lord of life. And so when we touch him, his holiness, his cleanliness comes to us, his restoration comes to us. But notice, though she did this, which would have been the scorn of the crowd, Notice how Jesus responds. He doesn't reprimand her or scorn her. He doesn't reproach her. He doesn't cast judgment upon her. He doesn't point out all of her faults before he engages her. I spent a season when I lived in Louisville going down to the abortion clinic. You know, we would get up and go down and I would walk alongside men and women, sometimes just men, men women and their, um, sometimes just women or women and their friends. And I would just plead with them to reconsider. I would plead with them to weigh out what they're about to do. I would remind them that there is right next to the abortion clinic in Louisville, there was a, a, a life center, um, a pro-life center. And so I would say, there's another option right here. There are other options. And I would tell them and appeal to them about, about, Churches will take your child. They'll adopt your child. We know people that will care for your child and would try to help them see this situation. And as they were about to go in, I would say, if you feel regret or shame later, Jesus will take you in. Jesus will take you in. And I, I never saw any fruit from it. I don't know what came of it. But there was a, a host of reasons why I stopped doing that. Um, but one of the reasons that I stopped doing that was that Christians didn't, a lot of the other Christians there didn't look like Jesus while they were there. They were marked by anger, fear-mongering, very hateful speech, strict judgment. And I would talk to them at times and say, look at how Jesus responds to the weak women that are in distress when he encounters them in the gospel. Do you, do you think we're reflecting that? Do you think we're embodying that? And, and they, they wouldn't agree. They wouldn't agree. And so 
what I think is important is that we see when we talk about this abortion industry is that we reflect the character of Christ, especially with those who are in the woes of it, right? Those who are feeling shame, those who are feeling regret, those who are wrestling with this decision, those who are carrying it. Now, the, the ones at the top who are implementing policy and looking to bring it into children's lives, they will answer to Jesus. And I'll, I trust him to do what is right. But she does, Jesus doesn't make her do all the right things to overcome and get right in his presence first. He just receives her in. He does, doesn't this point out the all sufficiency of Jesus Christ? Like all her money, every doctor, no solution, just touching the fringes of Jesus' garment is sufficient. He's the Lord of life, his power is supreme to heal and save and restore in this life or the next. And that's what she does. She comes to him and he gives her life and restoration. And just the fringes of his garment were enough. Just the fringes. So when we call about this faith, a public faith, he's gonna pull her into the public. I want you to think about faith like walking on a frozen lake. Perhaps you've heard this illustration. It's fairly common out there. Your faith can be weak as long as the one you're believing in is strong. So if I'm looking at a lake, what matters is the strength of the ice and my willingness to walk out on it. If it's half an inch thick and I have all the faith in the world that that ice is gonna hold me up, will it hold me up if I walk out on it? No. They say four inches for a 200 pounder and I'm over that. So if I, if I walk off on a half inch of ice, I'm going in. It doesn't matter how much faith I have that it's gonna hold me up. Now, if it's a foot of ice and I'm nervous about it and I'm terrified, but I walk out there, it's gonna hold me up, isn't it? No problem, no problem. It's not the strength of our faith that saves us and restores us. It's the strength of the one we believe which is Jesus Christ. A simple touch of his garments will bring full and complete healing. So what does Jesus do? He asks, she touches him. He asks, who touched my garments? And the disciples are rightly confused by this, right? Jesus, there's people everywhere. <laughs> like, how, what are you doing, Jesus? We don't know. And Jesus is not asking because he's ignorant. He's asking because he wants to draw her out. Jesus desires a relational connectivity to her, not just like a mob mentality. The woman may have come wanting something, but Jesus wants someone. So he stopped and he gave her his full attention. As one commentator states, he's not content to just dispatch a miracle. He wants a meeting. Discipleship is not simply getting our needs met. It's being in the presence of Jesus being known by him and following him. And so her being healed is good. And it's a display of Jesus's power that he's the Lord of life, but he draws her into public profession. We have faith in the Lord of life. And then it, that faith is a public faith. Look at verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him, the whole truth. 
So she's terrified, but she opens herself up to him entirely, speaks the entire truth, which means he's giving, she's giving her backstory and how she came to faith in Jesus. So when we, we come to Jesus in, in fear, maybe, amidst great trembling, Jesus doesn't intend to hang you out to dry or embarrass you. He brings you out into the public because he's gonna speak beautiful words to you of healing and consolation. She needed more than physical restoration. And so what does he do? He, br- he brings her out into the public. And then in verse 34, he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Daughter, an endearing, a familial term, warm, welcoming. Your faith has made you well, which means it's healed you and saved you actually. And here it seems to mean that it's both healing and restorative, it's holistic. She came desiring healing and she received salvation and healing when she received Jesus. And then he says, go in peace, be healed of your disease. So Jesus's words then begin to interpret her experience. She's been healed by Jesus. And then Jesus makes plain what has happened to her when he speaks it over her. You're in peace now. You've been healed now. This is what Jesus does for those that come to him. Drawing her out into the public helps rid her of public ostracism. It would encourage her reentry into society. And now she's with Jesus and she's known by his healing. She's gonna be received. So she came empty and open-handed and she left full. Our Lord of life, Jesus Christ, would have us though publicly profess him, make our faith known to him, display our faith. And in so doing, we share in the glories of Jesus Christ. We share of his work in our life. We share of the longings that others should have to know him the way we do. He's our Lord of life and our faith is meant to be brought out into the public and be seen. So this is a beautiful story, but think of everything that's going on around Jesus right at this moment. As I zero in on this woman, and that's wonderful what Jesus does, but Jairus is in the most dire moment of his life. The most extreme crisis he's ever faced. Jesus is his only hope and Jesus is headed to his daughter and what happens? He stops. Jesus, hurry up. Like, we gotta go. My daughter is not doing well. And then he turns to the crowd and he says, who touched me? Like, Jesus, we're on the, like, my daughter's sick. You're asking this crowd who touched you? We don't have time for that. Let's go, everyone's touching you. And then Jesus stands there and waits for a minute. Just waiting for her to come. Jesus, we have to go, right? And then this woman comes out of the crowd and Jesus proceeds to talk to her and he listens to her and she starts telling her story, the whole truth, it says in 33. If I'm Jairus, Jesus, stop talking to this woman or Jesus, come on, lady, get to the point, right? Reader's Digest version here, let's go. And with not a moment to spare in Jairus's mind and probably the disciples' mind, Jesus doesn't hurry. He does what he wants to do at his own pace. Isn't it so hard 
when you've got your list and you know the day's not long enough to get it all done and then something big crops up. Somebody needs something, but you've got your list. We've got to go. I, Jesus always prioritizes life and people. This is something that burdens me about the way the abortion industry talks about children. They'll tell expecting mothers that this is an interruption into your scheduled life that can be dealt with easily. They're consumed with fear and failure. How are we gonna make it? Uh, this, can, this child's dispensable. It's just an interruption. I'm not gonna give my focus on the child and the interruption in life. I'm gonna go about other more important things. And Jesus shows that no life, no life should be ended for our plans. No plan stood in the way of Jesus stopping and healing this woman. Jesus used this moment to display his power and this woman's faith while everyone was probably saying, Jesus, we gotta go. But don't be in such a hurry that you miss the people who need life all around you. Jesus stopped on his way to restoring a man's daughter. Our checklists don't exceed the personal demands we encounter every day. And this woman is a model of faith for Jairus because now Jairus is confronted with the most difficult situation a parent could ever face because he receives news that his daughter died. Look at 35 and 36. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. So we see that Jesus is the Lord of life and he calls this woman into public faith, but now he's gonna call Jairus into a persevering faith, a persevering faith. Well, he says, don't fear, only believe. You know, is Jairus gonna limit his understanding of the circumstances to just what he can see? Or will he look to Jesus to do what no one else can do? Will he see beyond the immediate pain and despair or will his initial belief in Jesus continue and persevere through this painful moment, this terrible news? Will he believe in the God who makes all things possible or will he give way to unbelief and doubt and despair? With Jairus alone, his circumstances are final with him. But Jairus isn't alone. And neither are we. I mean, imagine, it, don't go too far. If I do, I'll cry right now. But imagine how hard this was to receive this news. It would make me a basket case. And some of you know the pain. I wonder if Jesus told him quickly. They said, hey, your daughter's died. Don't, don't bother the teacher any longer. I wonder if Jesus said, don't fear, only believe, Jairus. I wonder if he quickly got in there truth, like don't, don't give way to this. Don't fear, only believe. Don't fear, I'm the Lord of life. Keep believing when others deny it. Don't let the doubts of those around you creep in. Persevere, persevere in faith, Jairus. Jesus calls him just as he calls us not to fear the world and the pain and the death that it delivers, but rather believe. Believe and keep Believing, that's a present tense imperative. Believe, Jairus, keep believing, even amidst dark reports. And then Jesus moves to exclude many and include Peter, James, and John. 
He gets to the house, gets his three disciples and the kids' parents and the book of Matthew, we know he dismisses the crowd. But when, we, when he gets there, it's chaotic. Verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Now, if you don't like your job, here's one you probably would like less. In the first century, they were professional mourners. And it was expected that a few flute players would play and that uh, typically a woman would be present to wail these loud laments and then attend the the, the deceased from the house to the grave. So Jesus arrives to this scene and when Jesus pronounces the girl is not dead but asleep, the professionals there that deal with this often find him laughable and just scorn him for it. Jesus reminds them, we're not called to fear, but keep believing in the face of skeptics and the face of doubters and the face of those who laugh at Jesus and scorn him. Don't fear, only believe, persevere, persevere in believing. Because they don't know who they're dealing with. They are dealing with the son of God who invented life. And in death is an opportunity for him to show his power over death by giving life. As Sam Alberry said, for Jesus, death is a nap. And for those who die in faith, death is temporary. And Jesus wants Jairus to understand that too. And you really start to get a sense at who the man is, Jesus Christ, in these intimate moments, what kind of man he is. Look at verses 41 and 42. So Jesus has put everyone outside, mother and father, Peter, James, and John, verse 41. He goes to the girl, takes her by the hand, and he says to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. For she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Jesus reaches down, takes her by the hand, and then speaks words of life to her. Talitha, which is like a a little lamb or a youth, arise. And Mark translates it for us with a Greek term that's very endearing, little girl, young lady. It's kind of like in the South when they call little girl sweetheart. It's a tenderness to it. Value, there's value, there's beauty, there's worth in this little deceased girl. All the mourners can do is weep and wail and treat her as a corpse. They laugh at Jesus. Jesus walks in, personally touches her, speaks life to her and restores her completely. And then to prove it, he says, she gets up and starts walking around and he says, let her eat, get her food. And certainly the temperature in the house changed from weeping to rejoicing, from mourning to congratulating, congratulating, from death to life. That's why we started off with how marvelous when we sang this morning. Peter's response is, I mean, proper response is to be amazed, astonished. We stand amazed in the presence of Jesus. We wonder how he could love us, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. And that's what they do. They stand in amazement. Jairus was faced with terrible, terrible news. 
Jesus intervened quickly. Don't fear, only believe. So his, his faith had to persevere through terrible news. His faith had to persevere through wrong assumptions. Remember what they told him? Hey, don't bother Jesus anymore. That's a false assumption. Jesus isn't bothered by our sicknesses. He's not bothered by death. He came to give life. So he, he had to believe through wrong assumptions. Jairus faced cold realism from the professional mourners. She's dead. She doesn't, Jesus doesn't know what he's doing. He's just laughable. Laugh at him. Je Jesus pressed on and Jairus had to press on trusting that Jesus would have the final word. So Jairus models for us this persevering faith and the woman models for us a public faith. And there, there are great differences between these two. This woman has nothing. She's unnamed. She has no position. She sneaks up behind in a shameful condition and touches his garment. And he's, she's healed. Jesus, Jairus comes from the front, approaches Jesus from the front, face to face. He has clout. He has a name. He's known in the city. He's respected among the community. He's a privileged and a blessed man. Different circumstances, different approaches to Jesus, but they both came to Jesus. And when they cast themselves on Jesus, they find all they will ever need. He is the Lord of life. He values life more than we ever could. And he can care for your every need. So whether you're coming to him from behind and seeking to remain unnoticed, or you come in full view and ask Jesus to attend to you, your faith in Jesus will bring you to the Lord of life who is sufficient to meet your every single need. It's not the strength of their faith. Jesus confronts them both on inadequacies of their faith. The woman needed to make her faith public. Jairus needed to persevere in faith. It's not the strength of their faith. It's the object of their faith that matters. It's Jesus, the Lord of life. And when we have faith in Jesus, the all-sufficient Lord of life, he can handle it. So whatever fears you face, whatever dangers abound, come to Jesus. Persevere in the face of hardship and difficulty. When you want to give up, hear Jesus. Do not fear, only believe. Jesus is strong enough to carry you through it all. We're going to sing our sins, they are many. His mercy is more here to close. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. He is Lord of life. By faith, follow him. Let his touch and let his words bring you restoration. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you draw us to yourself. Thank you that when you touch our lives, when you speak into our lives, you bring the words of life that we need because you are the Lord of life. So Lord Jesus, we pray you'll give us endurance and perseverance in our faith in you. We pray that our faith will be public, known, that it'll abound, it'll be in plain sight to those around us. And Lord Jesus, we pray that we will consistently and regularly remember your promise. Remember your command, do not fear, only believe. And remember your promise that you are the Lord of life, that you are the giver of all good things. May we cherish you, Lord Jesus, even in the face of great sorrow, great sadness, sickness, devastating news. 
Lord, help us not fear, but only believe. We ask it in your name. Amen.